This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. I'm very excited about the today's guest. He's professor of physical activity, lifestyle, and population health at the University of Sydney. He's the Charles Perkins Center team leader on physical activity, exercise, and energy expenditure. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm honored to welcome our guest, Professor Emmanuel Stamatakis. Welcome, Emmanuel. Uh, hello, Oli. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for finding the time to be guest in this podcast. So, so to start off with, you have done research widely related to physical activity and sedentary behavior. What is the things that you get most excited about at the moment? Uh, yeah, it's true. I have a fairly broad portfolio in terms of research activity over the last uh, uh, 10 years or so. Uh, mm. And I do, I still, uh, as my professorial title implies, I'm still quite broad. Uh, my main passion, my main interest, and my background are physical activity, and that's where my disciplinary home is. Uh, however, I do have a broader interest on uh, uh, lifestyle, in the, again, in a broader sense. Uh, the couple of projects I would say that uh, uh, I'm most passionate about, and these are project streams, project uh, programs, little programs um, that are at different uh, stages of uh, maturity, uh, is the Dog Ownership and Human Health, uh, which has been running for some three or four years. Uh, unfortunately, we had to scale it down a little in the last year or so due to funding circumstances, but it's still alive and kicking overall, and uh, will continue. The second uh, area that uh, I am investing quite a bit of energy in the last, uh, uh, again, couple of years is the prospective physical activity, sitting and sleep consortium. Uh, this is a very long-term research enterprise, uh, very collaborative, obviously, as a consortium. It will involve a large number of parties. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I've, I've been hugely enjoying it. Um, and finally, the third area that uh, I would like to mention as one of the most uh, uh, exciting for me uh, is the high-intensity incidental physical activity. Uh, it's a concept that uh, we coined the term, uh, but I'm very well aware that uh, others have discussed the same concept, high-intensity incidental physical activity in the sense of those very brief bouts of high-intensity physical activity that are embedded into daily living, that they're not exercised. And I believe that it's a very uh, exciting concept, and we do plan. We have uh, 
a fairly sizable program ahead. Uh, it's, I think it's very exciting because uh, it has been researched very, very little. And uh, public health standards, in particular the American, the US physical activity guidelines, by formally and explicitly removing the 10 minute bout requirement, open new opportunities, new avenues for capitalizing, for making mm -hmm. use of this uh, uh, very brief, higher intensity uh, uh, physical activity bouts. Yeah, yeah. And and actually, like you said, you are using the word incidental. Could you could you explain or tell the definition of incidental physical activity? Sure. Uh, that, that, that's a very good question. And uh, I should mention that since we coined the term and uh, we've started uh, using it in our interactions with the media, with funders, obviously we have a few grant applications uh, under review at the moment, we put in a few number of applications this year. I kind of, I had thought that incidental is a term that everyone would recognize and would instantly understand what it is, but I don't think that that's the case. I think I was, <laughs> we were wrong. Uh, so incidental basically is uh, any, all that incidental physical activity is all those uh, activities that are done as part of our uh, normal living. Uh, in mm. other words, uh, uh, walking, walking to work is incidental physical activity. You walk to go from point A to B. Uh, it's not uh, done uh, specifically as uh, uh, exercise. It doesn't take uh, preparation. Uh, incidental physical activity is carrying shopping uh, mm. back home from the supermarket, uh, walking to the bus stop, uh, walking up the stairs at work instead of using the elevator. So, incidental means that it's part of daily living. It's not planned and structured. And I, just for clarification, I should mention that, yes, some aspects of even the examples I mentioned, the main bit of planning, like, for example, mm. walking or cycling to work, you have to take the decision. So it's a conscious decision you, you take to cycle to work. You may need to prepare you to pack up your backpack. Uh, but the the over the overarching principle is that uh, it's the physical activity that uh, we do that usually replaces uh, car trips or uh, or other or other types of uh, of uh, or, or other types of transportation. Uh, but also, incidental, the value of incidental physical activity in relation to the concept of uh, HIPAA, high uh, intensity incidental physical activity, is that intensity is something that we can modulate. Hmm. The, 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 the person, the individual can modulate intensity in their everyday uh, life. And this is a concept that neither physiologically nor behaviorally researchers have looked into closely and that's what we're planning to do hmm. and now as you told the uh, uh, definition of incidental physical activity do you see there a big difference between the term non-exercise activity term genesis or is it quite the same uh, yeah there have been quite a few other terms that broadly describe the same concept one of them is NEAT, 
yeah. you've mentioned James's Levin uh, uh, work uh, about 20 years ago. Uh, another one is Martin uh, Gibalas from McMaster University in Canada, Exercise Snacks. Uh, that, that's a term that uh, was introduced a few years ago, and there have been a few uh, proof of concept trials. Uh, they all essentially describe the same the same concept. Uh, and uh, I did mention earlier that uh, I have uh, started thinking about it twice. I have started reconsidering perhaps the term we initially introduced because uh, I think the our utmost priority, if we are to develop this concept and do research and get the, the public to engage, understand its value, and try to do more of it, is to come up with a term that is very easy mm -hmm. to remember. Um, so the, the, all these terms, yeah, essentially they describe the same thing. Obviously, exercise knocks has a connotation of exercise, so it implies higher intensity, and it is about it is about higher intensity. Uh, Martin uh, Gibala's work, uh, Martin Gibala, for those um, uh, listeners who uh, are not familiar, he has coined the term sprint interval training. Essentially, all these terms uh, describe the same thing, but um, uh, exercise snacks and high intensity incidental physical activity uh, have an extra element in relation to need, and that element is higher intensity. Uh, exercise snacks, for example, uh, refers to uh, very high intensity and very brief bouts. Uh, stair climbing is the kind of the modality of incidental physical activity that uh, uh, Martin Gibala's group mm. have tested. Uh, and our uh, HIPAA is explicitly about, uh, also about um, high intensity physical activity. So, yeah, the three terms describe the same thing, but the two, the most recent terms, our terms and exercise snacks, uh, has also the additional uh, element of high intensity physical activity. And I think it is worth considering this extra dimension of uh, incidental physical activity because we know that uh, higher intensity physical activity, although as sporting and exercise activity, it is uh, there are many serious barriers to doing mm -hmm. it. Uh, no one has looked at the it's incidental, it's everyday, day-to-day -day living uh, aspect, which overcomes many of those barriers, the barriers to doing exercise, in particular, the time barrier, which is the number one reason why people say, physically inactive people say that uh, they don't exercise. The first reason in pretty much all surveys I've seen from different countries, uh, UK, Australia, European countries, typically uh, surveys, the outcomes of surveys on barriers on physical activity exercises, the number one reason is lack of time. Uh, the number two reason usually is low priority assigned to exercise, but I think this is low priority goes hand to hand with lack of time and low motivation. So they're all sides of the same mm. coin, really. Yeah. And and you said high intensity incidental activity and an example of stair climbing. What other examples you have of high intensity ones? Uh, the simplest uh, HIPAA example would be to 
step up the pace, increase the pace of walking. Mm. There have been a number of epidemiological studies over the last uh, few years, including um, uh, our study, the, the study of uh, uh, nine or ten pooled British cohorts, which uh, found that there is a very consistent association between uh, walking pace and uh, inverse association between walking pace and uh, all cause and cardiovascular mortality. In other words, the higher the uh, walking pace, the lower the risk for cardiovascular mortality. And in our study, uh, which was published in uh, June 2018 in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, we found that the, such a finding was very, very pronounced among people aged 60 and older. So increasing the walking pace to the point that it becomes vigorous, and we know from Katrin Tudor Locke's work that uh, a heuristic threshold of 130 steps per minute uh, will be uh, is the absolute uh, intensity, vigorous intensity for most adults. Um, it is the simplest way to uh, to practice uh, HIPAA, high intensity incidental physical activity. Mm. Other examples, simple things like. Parking the car at the edge of the car park, not outside, not outside the front of the supermarket. Park the, parking the car 100 meters away, and carrying the shopping instead of using the trolley. Carrying shopping equivalent, I don't know, perhaps 10% of one's body weight, 10 kilograms or seven, eight kilograms for a 70-year-old person. That's another excellent example of high-intensity physical activity for most adults. We have the first the first realization we need to make when we think about HIPAA and um, exercise snacks and uh, NEAT and all these things. The first realization is that uh, people will reach high intensity because of the baseline fitness level in the population. It's so low, mm -hmm. and we have seen it's getting lower. There has been there have been a number of studies showing uh, that the average fitness among adults is getting lower and lower and lower every decade on a decade by decade basis. Uh, because people are so unfit, even short bursts of high intensity physical activity will help them improve the baseline fitness, which in turn, hopefully, and I'm saying hopefully because this is not empirically tested yet, because this is a very new field of research, hopefully by building a little bit of uh, fitness capacity, it will become easier for them to be able to consider and perhaps uh, start uh, start an exercise program mm -hmm. as well. But even in the absence of the exercise program, uh, I believe that high-intensity incidental physical activity, these short sporadic bouts of incidental activity embedded within day-to-day -day living, they do have considerable, very good potential to improve people's uh, fitness, especially uh, those middle-aged and older adults who are um, at, the, at, the, at the bottom of the cardiorespiratory fitness distribution. Mm. Yeah, so basically you said that just walking faster or carrying something heavy are the, are the good, good options to get it higher intensity. And, and how, how do you see that 
there's there's of course showing that any activity is good breaking up sitting just just for a minute is good but for higher in uh, intensity do you think it the heart rate needs to go up before it is beneficial in some some aspects of it uh, yeah we have uh, we have uh, as i mentioned before we have a program of work planned around incidental physical activity so i will uh, yeah we'll reveal a couple of details about some of those studies and one of those studies is uh, essentially is to uh, to physiologically define the bout of HIPAA, to physiologically define the bout of uh, uh, high intensity incidental physical activity now based on the existing evidence which comes from those proof of concept uh, trials uh, from McMaster University, uh, we can see that uh, uh, even a 20 second uh, climb, vigorous climb of a staircase, three flights of stairs, which approximately takes for a, uh, if you do it fast, takes about 20, 30 seconds, that leads to increases in heart rate in the region of over 80%, over 80, 85%. Mm. And that will be the case. And these are experiments, these are studies, these are proof of concept uh, trials that uh, essentially uh, recruited young adults. Now put the put in the same position a middle-aged person, an overweight or obese person, an unfit person, and definitely they will reach during climbing three 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 flights of stairs they will reach very high intensity yeah uh, in the region of over 80 to perhaps 90 percent of vo2 max or maximal theoretical uh, age specific maximal heart rate let's hear a few words from our sponsors and continue right after that this podcast is sponsored by fibian a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting standing physical activity and energy expenditure. Furthermore, Fibian has been shown to be valid categorizing physical activity into light, moderate and vigorous intensity. In addition to scientific accuracy, Fibian provides automatically produced and easy-to-understand reports for research participants. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. Yeah, and, and have you thought of the aspects of muscle activity versus heart rate? Uh, usually carrying something heavy is, is more kind of loading for the muscles rather than the heart. Have you have you thought of this? Yeah, uh, because it's such a new area and there are so many uh, unknowns and there are so many things that need to be empirically defined uh, we start with um, uh, cardiorespiratory fitness as uh, the main outcome. We have to start from somewhere, mm -hmm. obviously. We don't have unlimited resources. And uh, when, we, uh, put, when we put in grant applications, uh, many funders prefer the application to be focused on specific outcomes, whether these are uh, physiological outcomes, behavioral outcomes, or uh, disease-related outcomes. So we start from... Uh, fitness as cardiorespiratory fitness as uh, the first outcome, but I totally agree that there are other aspects uh, of fitness like uh, musculoskeletal health and uh, muscle strength that uh, could also be tackled by uh, uh, by higher intensity physical activity. 
and I, I should perhaps uh, make it clear that uh, the target population here, the part of the population that is most likely to benefit are those who are at the bottom of the distribution, whether that's the muscle strength distribution in the population, whether that's the cardiorespiratory fitness distribution in the population, whether that's the balance, um, uh, the, the, those who are at the bottom of the balance uh, distribution, if such a thing exists. I don't think that they're balanced population-wide wide, uh, balance standards, for example. But it's important to make this differentiation because what we, uh, especially when we interact with media and journalists, what they ask, what journalists and uh, many members of the general public are interested in is, uh, so if I walk a bit faster, if I walk a few flights of stairs every day, is it okay to give up my gym? Mm. This is not about the yeah, high intensity incident of physical activity, is not about uh, building a very high level of fitness. And uh, it's perhaps it's not, uh, it's not the optimal. In, in a way, it's not the optimal. Of course, people who take part in a formal in a structure program of high intensity uh, interval training, uh, those who do CrossFit will experience faster results. Most pronounced results will experience better results. Their fitness across all levels, muscle strength, cardiorespiratory fitness, uh, balance, everything will improve much, much better. So it is a concept about those that is most relevant to those middle-aged uh, and older adults in particular, uh, perhaps uh, some young adults as well, who are very physically inactive, who are very unfit. But guess what? Mm. Thinking about middle-aged adults and older adults, this is the majority of the population. The majority of the population is are very unfit. They have uh, other cardiovascular risk factors. They suffer from diabetes. They're overweight or obese. They have high blood pressure. If you if you if if you are to map the population in terms of these characteristics, fitness, uh, how physically active they are, and whether they have uh, uh, some kind of diagnosed uh, conditions, precursors typically of serious events like cardiovascular events um, or premature death. That's the large majority of the adult population. I can't add a figure to that, but I estimate it will be something around 80% and over of the adult population. So it's not a niche, it's not a niche issue. But at the same time, I think it's very important to be clear that, uh, that it's not necessarily a panacea and it's not uh, necessarily the best way for uh, people who are interested to maximize their fitness to become fit. Hmm. Uh, of course, we don't know. We, we don't know if 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 we if we behaviorally establish that it is possible, and we do find uh, the way to motivate, uh, inform, and motivate people to uh, add several, many keep uh, up bouts during the day. We, who knows what we will see? If, if for example, someone uh, uh, does uh, 15 or 20 bouts of uh, 30, 60 seconds of high-intensity physical activity every day, we really don't know. It could be that uh, fitness could skyrocket. We, we simply we do not know. Mm. There is no laboratory research or population-level research to, to give us any clue about this. So we start from 
we start from testing the concept and testing its physiological uh, benefits, its physiological effects uh, from the minimal dose. Uh, and this is what the, 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 these are the studies, the series of studies we have planned. And we start from the minimal dose, approximately uh, four, three to four hippopotamus per day. A, because the proof of concept studies from McMaster University show that uh, three sessions can have measurable effects. Three sessions of stair climbing by 20 seconds each session uh, spread uh, one to four days apart during the same day. Uh, such a protocol of uh, three sessions can have measurable effect on fitness over six weeks. Uh, so once we establish that uh, what is the potential of a low dose high intensity in the physical activity, uh, then we can uh, we can we will hopefully by that time we will have scaled up our research program and we will be able to test the same concept in larger doses in different populations to see how far um, HIPAA can go. Hmm. I, I, I really like the concept and, and see the value, especially activating the the bottom of the distribution, as you said. Uh, how do you see how this should be promoted? Have you done anything to promote the idea idea all the way to the population? We have not done any empirical work to understand uh, the behavioral uh, translation of the concept and what, uh, what are these messages that people will be uh, able to act upon. Uh, this is again, this is part of the planned work we have. Uh, we have a fairly thorough program uh, about it. But uh, all, I, all I can tell you is the public response to uh, media stories and editorial we published back in uh, February in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. So alongside the editorial we published, I wrote an article for The Conversation, that uh, popular science website. Uh, the article was read uh, 550,000 times within uh, five days and it generated a lot of comments. So there is a lot of interest, a lot of comments from members, of, from readers, members of the public who were saying that I love this idea. I would never exercise, but this is something that I'm going to try and incorporate into my day-to-day -day life uh, because it sounds good. Uh, so there is a, there was a very, very good response, very, very good response from the public, which, so I believe that if we get to a point and we do a bit more work to empirically show, find out what is the potential, physiological potential, long-term health potential, uh, fitness, uh, fitness promoting potential. Uh, and at the same time, we develop a little bit more the behavioral paradigm. How are we going to go about promoting it? Mm. I think the public will respond very, very well. At least these first signs are, are, are excellent, are fantastic. So we had good response. The piece had fairly good response by the scientific community. We got access a lot in the down, got lots of downloads in the British Sports Medicine website. I think something about twenty thousand times, which is a, is good for an editorial. It's fairly good. But the most encouraging sign from that uh, press release, uh, the editorial, the press release, and the publicity that followed was that uh, the general public, the general public, seemed to love the idea. Uh, 
although I'm very, very careful every time I talk about it, I'm very, very careful because I don't want to sound as we're after uh, the next quick fix. Mm. It's not about a quick fix. It's not a panacea. It's not, I'm not, we're not claiming that the HIPAA should replace uh, current physical activity guidelines, should replace uh, the advice that clinicians and public health professionals give about um, the 150 minutes moderate and uh, the 75 uh, vigorous uh, minutes of physical activity per week. It's in addition to, really. It's in addition to, and it's an alternative uh, way for those who, for reason X, Y, or Z, will not engage in structure, in planned exercise. We'll never go to the gym. Uh, we'll never uh, approach or don't, do not have the capacity to have a personal trainer. We'll never go for a run, uh, won't cycle to work, uh, and so on. Mm, yeah. And and you have been writing at least a couple of papers about the 2018 U.S. physical activity guidelines. Uh, could you tell more about these papers of yours? Yeah, yeah, I'm very interested on physical activity guidelines, physical activity and central behavior guidelines. It is how uh, I see much of my work being translated, being communicated to the public. So I'm very passionate about those and uh, yeah, I'm involved in the forthcoming uh, uh, World Health Organization's Global Physical Activity Guidelines 2020, uh, that, uh, which will be released next year. Mm. Um, it is very encouraging. Yeah, I believe that uh, physical activity guidelines uh, are evolving uh, in the right way, are evolving in a very nice way. Uh, for example, and in particular, the uh, the kind of uh, the aspect of the American guidelines uh, that, uh, as I have I, I have written a few times, you know, I'm most excited about is, is the removal of the that 10 minute bout, uh, the 10 minute bout mm. for uh, physical activity to be considered beneficial by guidelines. So that's a very positive development. Opens several new avenues and opportunities. One of them is HIPAA, the High Intensity Incidental Physical Activity. Uh, but I believe that guidelines in the next few years, perhaps not in the next five years, uh, I would say guidelines, the, the, the cycle of, of physical activity guidelines is 10 years for most organizations like American uh, Americans, release them every 10 years, WHO update them every 10 years. Uh, the UK ones are a little less regular, but uh, it was 2004, 5, then 11, and then 2019, so seven, eight, nine years. I think that in the next in the next iterations of physical activity guidelines uh, will be a turning point. And the reason is that we will start seeing uh, objective physical activity studies, studies with uh, objective physical activity measurements uh, occupying a larger and larger chunk of the evidence used to, to develop the future future guidelines. Now, and why is this going to be a turning point? Because objective data will start telling us a different story. I believe that objective data will start telling us a different story mm. as to what are the minimal and optimal amounts. And we saw that uh, with uh, the work of uh, Ulf Ekelund, I'm in this uh, BMJ paper that yeah. was published in, in August. We saw that 
very clearly that when you pull a fair amount, a fair amount of uh, accelerometry data, uh, and you harmonize it, you have a kind of a good, a robust way to um, ha harmonize uh, uh, the studies and uh, do, do derive estimates in a consistent way. Effect sizes double compared to what questionnaire studies use to tell us for MVPA at least. Uh, now let's not forget that in this is very encouraging and very novel data, fantastic study. Uh, I was fortunate to be a review for BMJ as well for the study. Uh, I should, we should not forget that high worn, uh, sorry, waste worn accelerometry is relatively limited, mm -hmm. although. It is, in some ways, it is a step ahead compared to uh, compared to self-report. When we have eventually data from thigh-worn devices or data from studies that use more than one sensor, and there are such studies already, there are large epidemiological studies that implement multiple sensors. I think we will have we will see even more new insights. We will have a, a lot richer, a lot more detailed information about how various aspects, including intensity, which is one of many dimensions of physical activity. We just, we have focused so much on intensity or sedentary light, uh, moderate and vigorous, only because this is what has been possible to measure. But when we have information, device-based uh, data from other dimensions of physical activity, uh, like, the like the posture, like type, uh, Thigh-worn thigh devices now, they can estimate fairly accurately type of physical activity, cycling versus stair climbing, walking, running. Mm. I think, that, I believe that the guidelines will be forced to change, will be forced to change, which is not going to be easy. And I'm not, uh, <laughs> I should make it clear that I'm not uh, an advocate of making changes every time there are a few new studies, there are new, new body of evidence. Guidelines in, their, in terms of the main, the headlines, the quantitative guidelines, I think they're fine as they are, uh, and they should be left alone for a little while. Uh, it, is, uh, it, is, it, it is very positive that none of the organizations that uh, are developing or have recently developed the physical activity guidelines have attempted to make any major changes on the headline 150, 75 vigorous or 150 mm. moderate. Because, uh, and it, it's very good that uh, we stick to what the majority of evidence, the main body of evidence tells us, which is comes from questionnaire-based studies. Mm -hmm. This 150 minutes and 75 comes from questionnaire-based studies. Uh, and it's not, we know it's not the absolute minimum anyway. So someone, if someone uh, wanted to change them, if they had the intentions to change them, they would have quite a good, good quite a few good arguments to change them because we see more and more clearly that even when it comes to questionnaire data the minimal threshold for uh, rapid reductions in uh, mortality and cardiovascular disease risk for example is well below the 150 minutes however i believe it's very positive that people stick to uh, the main guidelines and they don't rush to change them and the reason is that let's wait for a fair amount, uh, a sizable body of uh, objective physical activity studies to accrue, and then we discuss about changes. But even then, let's do it very, very carefully. Let's do it very, very carefully and be totally confident 
that these uh, objective studies, future studies, will tell us a story that's different enough to make it worthwhile going into uh, the trouble to changing them and then having to kind of uh, disseminate a new set of guidelines to the public, disseminate a new guideline to health professionals, and perhaps confuse some. So we don't want to be rushing and be making major changes every few years only because there are a few studies here and there. But in the, 10 years from now, again, thinking about the future and uh, judging from uh, the current uh, evidence production trajectory, in 10 years from now, we will have a lot of evidence from long-term uh, longitudinal uh, uh, studies with objective measurements of physical activity that perhaps will be going beyond the uh, waste-worn devices, waste-worn devices with all their limitations that I mentioned earlier. Let's hear a few words from our sponsors and continue right after that. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian, a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity and energy expenditure. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. It's it definitely makes a difference whether you can actually measure posture, different postures and different activity types. Mm. How, how do you see the recommendations? Isn't it quite tricky? Because anyway, there's a dose response. Uh, so more you more you do activity, more benefits you get. So how do you define that? What what do you say to the public that what is what is the recommendation? Another uh, another major advancement I would say in how the guidelines uh, referring to the American guidelines in particular are phrased is uh, this idea of the band of uh, volume of, of amount. So it's not only about one value; it's about uh, hundred between 150 and 300 means of moderate intensity activity, for example. That's very positive because uh, it is aspirational, aspirational in the sense that we know that the majority of people won't meet the upper threshold, but for those who meet the lower threshold, offer some aspiration to try and do a bit more. And we have very good evidence that uh, up to that level, the more the better, clearly the more the better, or although, uh, the law of diminishing returns applies uh, on the dose response curve of physical activity. And we know that the largest benefits occur when we compare the co completely inactive with those that do roughly half the recommended amount 75 minutes, 80 minutes of um, 80, 90 minutes of moderate, or uh, about 40 minutes of, of vigorous. Um, so, yeah, the, how the, the guidelines are communicated is that. Uh, Every all movement counts. Uh, the more, the better. And uh, I would not worry too much. Again, this is a comment that sometimes you hear, and a question you get from uh, from media, from journalists is, uh, what uh, what would you say to people who are on the borderline of exercise addiction? Yeah, I, there are extremes. Uh, there are people. Some people who can will interpret uh, any health message the wrong way and there's nothing we can do about it 
But let's face it, exercise addiction is not the problem, the main problem. The main problem is physical inactivity and the fact that we have engineered out physical activity from daily living. We have created an environment that um, uh, does, not, uh, does not permit people, does not empower people, does not enable people to be physically active in their daily living. Mm. Yeah, and and in in one of your paper you say about the physical activity guidelines and then implications for clinicians and the public. How do you see the difference between communicating the to the different like clinicians and public the guidelines? Uh, the first difference uh, when we communicate uh, guidelines and any health-related messages, really, between clinicians and the public, is that with clinicians, we have the opportunity to be a bit more sophisticated, a bit more detailed. With the public, we have to go the simplest possible way. So phrasing, it's important, and how the advice and the guidelines are worded and communicated are important. But when we communicate to the public, we should be removing any idea of ambiguity and ambivalence. And what I'm trying to say is that remove any uncertainty that comes from the evidence because the public gets confused once if you mm. say yes this is the recommended type and amount but anything that follows after that but is going to be a source of confusion and if the public gets confused they simply will disregard uh, they simply they won't listen and uh, it will be fairly impossible to act upon any kind of advice simply because people are over-bombarded by all sorts of information these days. So simplicity uh, is the number one priority, simplicity and consistency when it comes to communication to the public. The kind of consistency uh, that uh, comes with uh, kind of sticking to, to the same guideline, not, not changing the main messages every few years. When we communicate... Uh, uh, guidelines to health professionals. So I think we have the opportunity to be a bit more uh, sophisticated because they're obviously due to, the, thanks to their profession and their training, their professional training, they're uh, more literate, uh, more, more health literate. They can understand that concept of uncertainty. They can understand that different patient groups uh, and different population groups perhaps have different needs uh, so the communication, yeah, the communication is slightly different, although consistency, it is important. It is important with clinicians as well. It is important with clinicians as well, but uh, we can go a bit further than the one-size-fits-all message with clinicians. Hmm. Yeah. And, and how do you think the next guidelines that are coming up, do you think there will be specifically mentioned the high intensity incidental physical activity opportunities or how to do it uh, uh, yeah assuming that uh, for example the next american guidelines will be published in uh, 2028 the next who guidelines in 2030 perhaps uh, i really hope that by that point in time we will have enough evidence to start fleshing out a message around high-intensity incident and physical activity. Now, whether we will be able to do it or not, we will do our best, obviously. 
uh, I'm very, very interested in this and uh, I'm investing a little fair amount of uh, time and energy and writing things on writing grant applications. Is, I think it eventually is down to the research community to what extent they will believe in that concept to invest, uh, researching it. Uh, it's down to funders, uh, which is an extension of the research community to uh, fund uh, this kind of research. Uh, and the, 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 this, these are the two main factors that will determine whether we can we will see specific elements about uh, exercise snacks or uh, high-intensity synthetic physical activity or whatever term uh, is eventually going to survive to describe this concept, the concept of uh, the concept of HIPAA we, 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 we coined uh, this year. Other elements of, uh, of the future physical activity and central behavioral guidelines. Uh, we have written, we have made a case in a paper published last year uh, about uh, sedentary behavior, about sitting guidelines, about sitting guidelines that the timing is not right. I think that in 10 years from now, perhaps we will be in a position to have quantitative guidelines about sitting mm. as well. Uh, I, cannot, I cannot really predict. I cannot really predict because I can see that uh, there is a, a fairly hot debate. Um, there was some debate even before what we published, I think our piece, the, the 2018 piece, kind of heated the debate a bit more as to whether central behavior is simply the inverse of physical activity. And in a way, yeah, um, I think I think the, the 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 central behavior as a field has done immense good to our research paradigm. It was very very good that the discussion about this very low intense activity and central behavior uh, about 15, 20 years ago when this discussion started. And uh, what it prompted us to do is to move away from the MVPA, moderate to vigorous physical activity paradigm, which in a way it's quite narrow. Now, whether central behavior will survive as a distinct, uh, as, a, as a behavioral uh, risk factor in its own right, I cannot, this is something I cannot uh, predict because there is a fairly hot debate as to whether uh, it's a standalone uh, or it's simply the, the inverse of light intensity physical activity. So one might argue, uh, instead of uh, advising people to sit less, why don't you advise people to move, uh, to move at any opportunity, to move more, to move at any intensity? Hmm. Yeah, that's that's. It will be interesting. Yeah, it will be it will be very interesting. Yeah, it will be very very interesting to see how things will evolve in the next in yeah, the next few years. I, I I could see that it's always so so many processes in in the body biochemical there's different pressure when you sit there's different position on your back that it's not only the other side of sedentary behavior and physical activity of course many of the effects might be but don't you think that there's so many things i think we are not designed to sit as as evolutionary animals that it's probably not we are not designed to sit and probably it's not a good idea to sit too much uh, yeah we're not designed we're not designed to, to sit uh, 
in the to the extent that we we sit and uh, at least we should make it clear that we refer to that part of the population who uh, have occupations mostly who have occupations to be to, uh, that force force them to sit in a way there are other occupations there are still active occupations who have to be uh, to be moving uh, for much of the day at the light intensity for example mm -hmm. cleaners uh, supermarket workers uh, uh, sales assistants so we we should be we, sitting as a posture is, is very complex i totally agree and i do acknowledge and uh, as i said earlier i think it's it's a it's a it's a paradigm that did a lot of good it was very positive that, that all this discussion that the central behavior as a research area was introduced about 15 years ago that was very very there, there's no mm. doubt about that um it's it's a very sitting as a posture is very complex definitely something it's it's part of it's a big part of part of the problem there is no doubt about that because uh, when uh, someone sits, there is no mm. movement. So when someone sits, there is no movement. Now, when it comes to adults, working age adults at least, we knew, do need to integrate a bit the occupational health paradigm with leisure time physical activity paradigm. Uh, and uh, we need to acknowledge that uh, for certain occupations, sitting is not a bad thing because they need to recover. and they, the, the, their problem the, their problem is uh, they don't have adequate time to recover from this constant light intense physical activity or in some occasions light to moderate intense physical activity um so it is something that is context specific the importance of sitting in office workers workers who are forced to be sitting for many 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 hours uh it's something to be uh, treated in a different way to those workers who, as a matter of how, what their occupation entails, the tasks they have to do during the work, and have uh, uh, no or very little opportunity to sit and, uh, and recover. But considering the totality of the population, yeah, uh, I think sitting is, uh, it is a potential target. It is a potential target. But I think how you, how, how, how you tackle it, whether you tackle it through messages around doing more physical activity of any intensity or specifically discouraging people to sit, I think uh, we don't have the answer yet. What's the best, the better approach? What's the best approach? Um, there has been a number of interventions. So one of the things that uh, pro, uh, that, that, that that kind of gave uh, momentum to this area of central behavior uh, 10, 15 years ago was that the argument uh, that somehow uh, it will be a lot easier for people to not to be sitting than doing exercise. Okay, so that argument has some face value. Uh, it is a lot easier to simply stand. There is no doubt for that than uh, uh, joining a gym, uh, getting ready to go to the gym, going to the gym, doing uh, uh, whatever pro your program, then uh, changing, having a shower, coming back. Yeah, behaviorally, it's a lot less complicated. But if you see at uh, empirical evidence, if you look at studies, if you look at meta-analysis and systematic reviews of uh, studies that target uh, central behavior or physical activity, it doesn't seem to be behaviorally. They don't seem to be more successful. Central behavior re re reducing uh, trials do not seem to be more successful than uh, exercise or physical activity increasing trials. Uh, so they're both 
difficult. Changing people's habits is difficult. So that's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. And we still have not discovered, we still do not know what is the best behavioral approach to, to, for, for, to, to, to change people's behavior towards a more a healthier uh, physical activity and sitting uh, pattern. Mm. And how, how do you see that anyway, like you told that just standing up, is it's easier than going to the gym, but then the interventions are not more effective. Do you think it's because sitting is defined by norms quite quite widely or why do you think it is like this? I think it's a part of habit and the part of the environment. I think that's why these are the reasons why uh, sitting reducing uh, interventions are not more successful than uh, than physical active interventions and uh, typically uh, uh, you see that sitting reducing interventions they are successful in reducing sitting by 20 25 30 minutes per day mm. uh, which is not always replaced by physical activity some of that is standing uh, in the occupational domain of course uh, they're more successful in the sense that you see uh, much larger effect sizes when you have uh, sit-stand intervention. So when uh, sitting is replaced by uh, standing through the use of a sit-stand desk, you see the effect sizes in the region of one to two hours per day. Uh, I think the the problem and the the, the the power of the habit, the power of the habit. So people are accustomed to doing things in their everyday life in a certain way, and uh, it is not easy for people to change that habit, especially when the environment does not encourage them mm. and the, when the environment does not uh, uh, enable them to change behavior in the long term. Yeah, yeah. Us researchers in the field of in any health-related uh, field tend to think that because we think about health and because we think about physical activity and healthy lifestyles much of our time, both uh, uh, as a uh, uh, both as professionals and as individuals, the majority of us are physically active people. We think that uh, the public uh, th thinks the same. Uh, I, I, I think that health and uh, health behaviors is a much lower priority for the general public. And when it becomes a priority, it's a priority in the sense of how to find a quick fix, how to find the healthy alternative, a healthy behavior uh, without making much effort. And this is something that I'm very clear and uh, honest with myself and my colleagues about. That this is the kind of problem we will encounter uh, when we try to uh, to promote high-intensity incidental physical activity as well. Mm, yeah. And I, I wanted to ask you, like we've been talking about the next physical activity guidelines, what is your prediction? How will be the guidelines in 2050? 2050. Uh, by that time, we will have uh, a lot of evidence from thigh-worn devices and devices, uh, uh, perhaps studies that use multiple sensors. So uh, epidemiological studies by that time uh, will be able to estimate very accurately, very objectively and very accurately people's uh, type of physical activity, uh, uh, the posture, uh, 
perhaps the domain as well, uh, which is uh, devices uh, currently are very poor in uh, measuring, understanding different domains, but uh, I expect that by that, in a 30 years time, we will have cracked that as well. We will be able to uh, use devices to understand whether people uh, do uh, transportation activity, related activity, occupational activity, or recreational activity. So I think it will be a body of evidence that will mostly based on, uh, primarily will be based on devices. Of course, it will, it will not be only devices. We will still have studies, these long-term co cohorts uh, that uh, uh, have always used questionnaires. Uh, it's very hard to say, it's very hard to say how the guidelines will change because if I could predict uh, what uh, the evidence will be like in 10 or 15 years, I think that would make me a little biased towards trying to find uh, these elements of the evidence, these changes, but I think we will have specific guidance on central behavior, we will have specific guidance on the balance uh, of postures uh, in, that will be specific to the occupational context, or the occupational circumstances, people's circumstances. And we will see, like many other as as uh, aspects uh, of medicine, we will see a movement towards personalization, what we call precision medicine, which uh, I am skeptical. I have been. I have always been skeptical for both of those uh, entities, which uh, appeared. Uh, sometimes they are they are used interchangeably: precision medicine and uh, personalized mm -hmm. medicine, because uh, there has been a huge investment since uh, 2000. And I remember 2000. There were pieces in uh, there were pieces in Science and Nature saying that we're 10 years uh, away from personalized medicine from the time when a patient would go to their doctor and the doctor would give them a lifestyle prescription and medication prescription that uh, entirely uh, matches their very personal uh, uh, genotype, genotype, genotype gen genotypic and, and phenotypic profiles uh, as we know this is uh, still uh, a future scenario so 20 years down the line almost 20 years down the line and we still have not seen any tangible results. Uh, so personalized medicine and precision medicine are the disease burden reduction at the disease prevention level. I do not think it has produced any tangible results at all, despite the huge investment, the huge financial investment by taxpayers' money, the huge financial investment by the, uh, the, the private sector uh, in industry. So, whether physical activity will go down that path, uh, I think it, it, it is likely. It is likely because there are so many financial interests linked to precision and personalized medicine. I think this is a kind of concept we'll be hearing a lot about in the next few years. Also, like we've been hearing in the last twenty years, whether it will, whether it works or not, because there are large financial interests involved. There is a large investment in uh, uh, general in genotyping, for example, people, and uh, trying to uh, prescribe uh, specific therapies and uh, specific uh, lifestyle changes. Let's hear a few words from our sponsors and continue right after that. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research. So do, do you...
Yeah, do you think there's much to be personalized? Like probably everyone needs some aerobic exercise or movement, some muscle strengthening is beneficial. Do you think there's much to actually personalize or how do you see it? Uh, I, I don't think that personalization uh, is the way forward because personalization is extremely costly. It, it, at the, at the, at the any level, to kind of uh, to genotype and phenotype one person, uh, and then describe a, a program that is very specific to to them, it's very costly. And uh, even if someone is prescribed perfectly, even if one day it becomes possible to be prescribed the perfect, the, the most tailored program for one's uh, uh, genotype and uh, needs and circumstances, we know that the problem is not the prescription, the limitation, the limiting factor is not the prescription, the limiting factor is people's motivation and people's supporting environment. Mm. So people who will be could be prescribed whatever program if they go back to the environment that uh, uh, prevented them in the first place to be physically active, they will be physically active again. And it's, it's exactly the same story like with, uh, with uh, health eating habits. You can prescribe, you can go to a dietitian and get prescri prescribed whatever. The perfect diet, the dietitian can do all sorts of assessments. Uh, they can refer you to a medical center to do blood tests to see what uh, Inefficiency, nutritional uh, deficiencies one suffers from, and then they can prescribe them the perfect diet. Uh, then, if the person goes back to an environment that uh, uh, is hostile to healthy eating and there is no 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 healthy foods are available, they will go back to the same eating patterns. It's exactly the same for physical activity. So I don't think that personalization. I think we will be hearing a lot about it. It's a, it's a, it is a scientific fad in a way. It's a long-lasting scientific fad, and we'll be hearing a lot about it. Uh, I do not think that it's a way forward for producing population-wide positive change at the population level. Uh, we should not forget that, that the unhealthiest layers of the society are those who are socioeconomically disadvantaged, the people with the lowest capacity for behavioral change, not only because they don't necessarily, they don't always have the information or they have uh, uh, more difficult access to up-to-date information, but the lo lowest levels of the society, the most socioeconomically advantaged, are the people who would assign the least priority to lifestyle change. These people have a lot more serious problems to deal on a day-to-day basis. Whether that's whether they have enough to make ends meet, to, to buy food for their children, pay for their bills, uh, uh, or all these uh, uh, kind of consequences and uh, societal problems that uh, are very prevalent and present uh, among uh, disadvantaged uh, groups uh, like alcohol, alcoholism, uh, crime, domestic violence. So all these, all these such circumstances are not a fertile ground 
for people to worry about uh, cutting the 10-year cardiovascular disease risk by increasing uh, the physical activity by 20 minutes per day. Mm, yeah, yeah, I see that. And and when you when you made the prediction for 2050, you were saying that then it will be more thigh-worn data and maybe some domain information, whether the person was in transportation and information of posture. What would be the ideal device uh, to measure physical activity and sedentary behavior? Like, what what would you like to see in a device? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a device that will be collecting physiological data at the same time at uh, at the same time as measuring posture intensity. So at this point in time, we have different devices. Uh, usually different placements, wrist-worn, waist-worn, thigh-worn, and each device collects uh, quite different types of information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all devices, what is the, the current reality is that all these devices are basically triaxial accelerometers. Uh, the co- commercial, the, the, consumer, the consumer wearable devices sector is a little bit more brave and it's a bit more brave because they need to be selling products continuously and they need to be bringing new innovation all the time so that uh, consumers uh, uh, replace the, their existing gadget with the next one. Mm. Uh, the research grade uh, industry is a bit more cautious and I'm very glad that it's a bit more cautious because uh, we do need the same devices to stay in the market for a number of years so that we have the capacity and the opportunity to validate them, to compare them with each other. The perfect device for 2040 or 2050 uh, will be a device that will be perhaps will be more than one device. So that is good for collect, for understanding posture because we know that there is no single placement with this current technology, the triaxial accelerometer technology, there is not uh, a single placement that is perfect. Mm. Even the thigh, the thigh placement that we have invested on uh, as part of the uh, prospective physical activity sitting in the consortium, we know that it doesn't do a fantastic job uh, for differentiating between reclining and sitting. Mm. Uh, although there, 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 are, there are algorithms uh, to to do it fairly okay, uh, it's not perfect. And that's a very interesting question. It's a very interesting question whether what degree of accuracy is necessary for any device is necessary for us to capture and understand better uh, physiological effects of physical activity and uh, long-term risks of physical inactivity and sitting. Uh, I do have this discussion with my colleagues uh, quite often. And uh, the discussion goes as follows. So you typically, people who have, are doing uh, a lot of work on accelerometry, developing algorithms, machine learning to develop uh, uh, algorithms for detection of activity pattern type of physical activity. And uh, people who are into the, who, who, do, who do research, into the, they, they have a very strong focus on ac- accuracy of the devices. Now, my argument is, Wait a sec. So we have this all this body of evidence ca- coming from questionnaires. The large majority of evidence is still questionnaire based. Now, if we were to 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 put a figure on uh, percentage on how accurate questionnaires are, how what accurate uh, picture uh, questionnaires give us, 
what the, how accurate is the picture of people's daily physical activity at the population level. Uh, this is a guess. Uh, it's not an empirically derived figure in any way, but I estimate that questionnaires are approximately 20, 25, call it 30, stretch it to 30% accurate because they miss out all these very large chunks of activity and they miss out information about uh, short bouts, uh, lack of risk activity, they cannot measure incidental physical activity. So at best, questionnaires go 25, 30. Now, co compare that with uh, waste-worn devices, for example. We'll go a bit higher. I think we'll go around 50%, perhaps. Of course, uh, there are some aspects, some aspects of physical activity that questionnaires can measure and waste-worn devices cannot measure, but let's assume that waste-worn devices go a bit further, and they are 50% accurate. Mm. Then we have combined studies that use combined sensors, that they use thigh-worn, let's say, and lower back. So you get fairly good uh, accuracy in terms of posture, uh, very good accuracy if you do um, uh, either you do rules-based or machine learning-based uh, physical activity type recognition, you start getting a lot of information that until now only questionnaires give you. So let's say that dual two sensors will give you 70-80% accuracy. Does it really matter over that, up over that 50-60-70? Does it really matter? Is it going to make any difference if we get the perfectly accurate device that gives us information about each and every aspect of physical activity as well as physiological responses? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. For epidemiological studies, for large-scale population studies, uh, we may see that uh, the law of diminishing returns applies to the accuracy of the measurement as well. So the bottom line is that we should try and make use, best use of available data. It is uh, very positive that uh, there is a strong, good movement for improving the measurement of physical activity, so we can we should continue uh, with doing so, but uh, I think that uh, we shouldn't get too obsessed about it to reach uh, and, uh, de and develop the perfect device. Uh, I, hope the, I hope that at some point in the future, this research-grade device will be, will be able to incorporate at least one aspect of, um, some, some, will be capturing some form of physiological information as well. Heart rate, for example. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that's an interesting point. How important the accuracy is in the end? Is it diminished returned? Uh, do you think then that it should be should be more integrating different sensors, trying to measure different physiological responses, even though they are not maybe that accurate? <laughs> I, no, I think the future belongs to a single sensor uh, setup. Single sensor setup, and uh, the reason is that in large epidemiological studies, uh, the more sophisticated, the more complex the sensors set up, the lower the adherence. So you will be solving one problem, you'll be collecting better quality of data, and you'll be creating another problem, which will be that uh, people will be refusing to where the device is creating some kind of selection bias. Uh, or people will be taking off the device because it's too burdensome. Uh, there is a there is a, a bright exception to to what I'm saying that, that perhaps uh, make me sound uh, sound that I'm wrong already, and uh, that's a study from Norway, the Hand4 cohort. Uh, so the Hand4 they've done an amazing job 
with implementing a dual sensor setup, uh, a thigh worn and a lower, lower back uh, worn two sensors, two perfectly synchronized sensors. Uh, and they did, in terms of adherence, I can't remember the percentage, they did it really, really well. So they measured 40,000 people, 40,000, the majority of them, I think 36,000 uh, adults, 4,000 adolescents. And uh, in terms of response rates, excellent. They were very, very good. And people, uh, pretty, pretty much the large majority of the sample who were given the devices, who were the two devices, uh, had usable data. Now, HUNT4, it's a regional cohort. We should not forget that. It's a regional cohort with very strong rapport and support by the local population. In other words, it's a region in Norway where uh, the, the residents feel that this is our cohort, we need to support it, we need to protect it. So I don't think that that's necessarily, uh, this kind of uh, circumstances is necessarily transferable and uh, to other national cohorts in Australia, in the UK. I think for those, for the majority of epidemiological studies, we should be thinking about a single sensor uh, setup. For the purposes of the consortium, the PROPAS consortium, uh, we decided that perhaps the perfect, uh, the, the meeting point, the, the intersection between feasibility, data quality, and validity or accuracy, if you prefer, is a thigh-worn placement. Hmm. But uh, it's uh, yeah, it's certainly it's not it's not perfect. And uh, we 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 specifically focus on a single. Uh, we consciously uh, focus on a single sensor setup yeah. because of the feasibility considerations. When you, you start introducing multiple sensors, yeah, feasibility goes down, adherence goes down. So you end up losing data and it's very expensive to, to attempt to collect the data in the first place. Yeah, that, that makes full sense. Uh, before we finish, I want to ask a question about your uh, dog ownership study. It, it, it sounds interesting. Could you tell a little bit more about that project? Uh, dog ownership and human health. So this is the Charles, Charles Perkins Center project node uh, called the, the Dog Ownership and Human Health. Uh, I initiated it uh, a few years ago. Uh, I was very fortunate in 2015, if I remember well, 2015 uh, August. I was very fortunate to receive a lot of support from many colleagues at the University of Sydney and beyond. Uh, I'm truly grateful to people like Professor Paul McCreevy, leading uh, uh, animal behaviorist uh, internationally, uh, Professor Adrian Bauman, that uh, I'm sure uh, well, you, you and all listeners uh, know very well, uh, who supported this uh, idea. So hmm. the 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 idea behind that uh, program of research is that uh, although dog ownership is so prevalent, in Australia, for example, 40% of households own a dog. Although, and uh, similar figures are from the UK, the US, many most uh, high-income countries, dog ownership is very, very prevalent, 30 40% and over. Now, looking at empirical evidence, what is the influence of having one or more dogs living with one or more dogs. The empirical evidence is very, very basic, very, very poor. Uh, obviously, as a physical activity scientist, we had a particular interest in dog walking, but my interest, my interest, my, that, that, my interest was very personal when it comes to that uh, program of research. That was very, very personal because I got into dogs at a very, as an adult. So I was, I was 36, 37. Before that, I was completely indifferent. 
a series of events occurred uh, in my personal life and I kind of crossed the line and uh, crossed the line in the sense that uh, I was indifferent and I became extremely interested because I saw the value of uh, living with dogs for my personal, uh, my quality of life and I would say perhaps mental health as well in a way. Mm. Uh, and uh, that triggered my research interest. That triggered my research interest and triggered my desire to develop a research program. Uh, so we started it as uh, a trial, a series of trials on um, randomized control trials on uh, 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 assessing the effect of acquiring a dog um, for uh, the first uh, eight months, eight to ten months of the coexistence uh, of the acquisition. Uh, but uh, we encounter some serious problems with randomization. So I think one of the main reasons why evidence is not particularly robust and uh, sadly we were not able to fix that is that it is almost impossible to randomize. So to random, it's impossible to randomize people to acquiring a dog and not acquiring a dog or postponing the uh, dog adoption, dog uh, acquisition. Uh, because and despite the very methodical and very systematic work we did, uh, we did a pre-pilot study where we wanted to see what would incentivize potential participants to take part in a randomized control trial, what kind of incentives, uh, many, many other aspects um, uh, about uh, intentions. Uh, many, uh, we collected a lot of information about their intentions and the reasons why they acquired a dog. When we went in the field to do the randomized control trial, we realized that the decision to acquire a dog is beyond incentives, is beyond external factors. It's an internal decision. When people feel the time is right, they will go and do it, despite the financial consequences. And if people do not feel the time is right, they won't do it because it's a big responsibility. Uh, so we tried to, so this, that the stream of uh, randomized controlled trials eventually end up being controlled trials. We're about to publish the first one of these studies. It's not as robust as we'd like to be, but uh, in the current evidence landscape, it's still an important, uh, very useful addition. Uh, but we also have uh, a trial on uh, dog walking, what would incentivize people to, uh, to or dog, dog owners to walk more. Uh, the statistic in Australia is that uh, uh, among the 40% of households who own a dog, only 60% walk their dog at all. So, in other words, 40% of dog owners in Australia never walk their dog, which is a tragic statistic in many ways because uh, the first victim is the, the, the poor dogs themselves. Dogs need to be walked not only for the physical activity, to satisfy their physical activity needs. But more importantly, they need to satisfy their sensory needs. They need to, uh, they, they, this kind of enrichment that a walk gives them, uh, the, the, the stimulus a walk gives them, the sniffing needs, mm. the olfactory needs. And uh, if dogs do not satisfy this very important uh, set of needs, they develop invariably the behavior, behavior, they are unhappy and they develop behavioral problems. And this kind of problems uh, have a very adverse impact on the coexistence. 
between dogs and humans because uh, humans get frustrated by dogs' uh, behavioral problems uh, and uh, then their relationship is uh, basically spoiled and uh, dogs very often uh, are getting re-surrendered, uh, uh, re they re-surrendered to the dog center and uh, this, is a, this is a tragedy, this is a tragedy because it can do a lot of damage to, to the dog as well as leading to, to their, them being euthanized. Uh, so dog walking is very important, not only for the humans, for the owners, it's important for the dog as well. And our Paul Walks uh, trial, we are currently testing the efficacy of a dog tracker, something equivalent to Fitbit, basically, that dogs wear. And it's a, it's a wireless uh, Bluetooth tracker that communicates with the dog owner's uh, mobile phone through an app. And uh, very interestingly, the app allows them to sync their own Fitbit with the same application, the same app, and in a way they can compete with their dogs. So it's a behavioral trial uh, incentivizing and providing, providing, it's an intervention that promotes dog walking through the use of a dog a tracker. Uh, and uh, this is the kind of the line of work that we will concentrate in the next few years. We will focus mostly on dog walking because there's a very sound, there's a need there, the literature is not developed, and there's a very sound uh, reasoning and rationale for doing so for the benefit of both human health and dog health. And at a very basic level, uh, the new study, the, our newest study is uh, basically trying to characterize the working. If you look at the literature, nobody knows what is the what is the pattern? What is the usual pattern of the working in terms of intensity, duration, uh, average energy expenditure? We have a Cosmet K5 portable metabolic unit that we plan to use. We would use uh, uh, five volt accelerometers as well to characterize the working uh, behaviorally. Uh, and uh, yeah, hopefully uh, we will be able. My other my other ambition with research is to be able to start a cohort, a cohort study of dog and their dog owners, <laughs> uh, which uh, may be challenging to, to, to find it. We had a, we had a goal uh, with some, uh, we collaborated with some groups from the UK and we had a couple of goals, but funders don't seem to be sensitized, but we'll try again. We'll keep persisting. Yeah, no, so, sounds very interesting, the dog, dog fit fit. Yeah, uh, I think it's it's time to wrap it up. We've been actually having a very interesting discussions already for one hour and twenty minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's been a pleasure. It it was very interesting discussions. And once again, thank you for taking the time to be the guest in the podcast. Yeah, thank you. thanks very much, and well done on the on the series. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research. The Physical Activity Researcher podcast has created an activity tracker purchase guide for researchers. Get your free copy from the link in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to the Physical Activity Researcher podcast. 